Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me John Adams. Hello, John. Hi there. And uh, John, we've got you on to talk about your new film, Orgs. Is that, am I pronouncing that right? That's right. Yeah, it's um, it's actually an abbreviation for Auxiliary Reserve, um, which we'll we'll probably get to at some point when we talk about the the project development. But uh, yeah, Orgs. Well, no, I figured that because that's it is short for that, but it still feels odd. It still feels odd it, saying it as a word because obviously it's... it is a strange title, isn't it? And we did during the process we had lots of conversations about whether or not we'd release the film with the title Orcs or whether we'd, we'd change it for release. Um, and to be honest, we came up with, with all sorts of other genre film titles. We had, you know, Dead Patriot and, and, and various, other, various other titles that we considered. Um, and then we were looking at marketing comparisons and looking at projects like Wreck and Saw that have gone out with slightly, uh, slightly unusual acronyms or, or abbreviations. And, and we figured it's about the branding of how that Orcs is represented on posters and artwork and, and in, our, in our social media campaigns. So actually what we came up with was keeping the title Orcs and then having a hopefully what's going to become a recognisable logo for the film so that people recognise the typeface and immediately see kind of the military nature and, and realise it's not just a socket on an iPad or something. No, no, no. It's and and it's and, and for that it works. It's uh, it's just my it's just my wrestlers that I'm talking on a podcast and I want to get it right. <laughs> so, um, so before we do anything else, do you want to give us a brief synopsis about Orcs? Then, a uh, brief synopsis of Orcs. Okay, um, it is a action thriller which starts when a couple of teenagers playing in the woods find a trapdoor in the forest floor, basically. Um, and they're slightly intrigued by this. Um, they open it. One of them's a bit nervous, doesn't want to go down there. The other one does. Um, it ends up with one of the kids not making it out of the little underground bunker that they find alive, and the other one running so scared that he gets hit by a car and, and ends up in a coma. Um, and the film then follows the police investigation into what's going on there. And as the, the, the kid's disappearance and the other one's hit and run gets investigated, the police officers investigating start to be picked off and murdered in quite grisly ways. So it starts out as a serial killer movie. Um, and that then starts to intercut with an old World War II veteran played by John Rhys Davies, Jack, who's in a nursing home. 
Um, and he is convinced that he knows what's going on. He's watching it all unfold on, on Sky News and he's convinced he knows what's going on. But the people caring for him think he's a senile old doddery old, old man and, and don't want him to get to the authorities. So basically it's it's sort of gradually the police get more and more intrigued into what might be happening. And eventually the, the police get together with Jack and they, they work out that there's a slightly more supernatural and, and sinister thing going on behind the scenes. And Jack leads them into the forest to confront what he knows is there. And, and it's interesting you say action thriller because it's also it also felt very much like um, like the building a lot of it a lot of the action that you see is like the building blocks of of a traditional slasher film in the sense yeah. that there's there's an unseen killer and people are getting bumped off and we've got to we've got to try and work our way through through that as everyone has the answers keeps dying and then and then or everyone that sees what the problem is doesn't get to tell the tale. Yeah, I think I think what we were going for was. I mean, it is, as you say, the building blocks of it. There's a lot of slasher horror movie elements in there, uh, especially around the deaths and the build up to the to the individual deaths. Mm. Um, what we were going for, I think, was to try to do something sort of a smart genre film. So there's a bit more of a of a hook underneath the plot line. It's not just a, a serial killer, as you as you know. It's it's got a bit more of a a smart twist than that. Yeah. So so do you want to talk about where where how did you? I'm guessing Peter Adams is your brother. Uh, no, Peter Adams is my dad. We've worked together on on a number of movies before. We've actually we've co-written a few scripts. The the last thing that we did together, uh, we actually co-wrote my, myself, my dad, and Irvin Welsh co-wrote a thing called The Magnificent Eleven a few okay. years ago okay. uh, with Sean Pertwee and Robert Vaughan and people in. Um, so we we have worked together before. I have to say, Orcs came out of uh, came out of Pete's brain. Um, it's an idea he came up with. He's a he's an avid historian, my old man. He he loves his he loves his World War Two, his history. He's a big Winston Churchill fan. Um, and he was talking to me one day about Churchill's plans for 1940 for if the Nazis had invaded. Okay. Um, of course, the 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 expectation was when the Nazis went straight through Europe and and you know invaded France through the Ardennes with Rommel pushing through with his Panzer divisions and and just got to Paris without any real kind of resistance um everybody just expected them to keep going and churchill started to make plans for nazi invasion of the united kingdom um and you know if we hadn't won the battle of britain in 1940 and, and kept air superiority it was almost inevitable that we would have ended up with the germans landing in the uk and so what churchill did was he he started to plan for that eventuality and he started to put in place a series of quite aggressive tactics to make sure that if the Germans did invade the UK, they couldn't govern properly. Um, and one of the things that he formed was the Auxiliary Reserve. And the Auxiliary Reserve was a, a quite select special forces group, mm. which grew out of the Home Guard. And when you say the Home Guard, people just think of Dad's army and you know, blunderbusses and muskets and um, kids and yeah. old men. Uh, that's because of the, the, the TV shows that, that we've all seen. Um, but actually, the Auxiliary Reserve was something a little bit different. They were very highly trained guerrilla fighters. And the idea was that they were basically trained to disrupt the fabric of society so that the Nazis couldn't govern and they inherited chaos. And that actually meant, and this is all true history, that actually meant that they their, their mission was to kill the local police chief, the local mayor, the local, you know, any local dignitaries, set roadside bombs, kill their own people, just effectively be almost terrorist fighters within their own country to disrupt the fabric of, of society so the Nazis couldn't govern. Um, and that's that's what Jack, the, the old man in the in the nursing home in our movie, that's that's what he was. He was one of the auxiliary reserve. Pretty effed up that, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yeah. As, and not many people realise that that's 
you know, because nowadays we it's all history. So we just we know that we won the Battle of Britain and you don't really think about what public perception and, and Churchill's perception would have been. But until you know, until you know that we managed to keep air superiority, it was it was sort of just expected that we were going to be invaded. Mm. So so when when you and so how do how do you and your dad work in terms of then taking that idea? And then and then creating the screenplay. Does he go away and write stuff, and you you comment on it, or do you sit in a room together? How does it work? Uh, sort of combination of both, and it's it's how we, we we fight like cat and dog. Me and me and my dad, we we always have. Um, we love each other loads, and yeah, we're we're best mates. But when it comes to working, we will scratch each other's eyes out over the smallest bits of, of, of plot and dialogue. Um, so normally, what happens is whoever comes up with the idea writes the first draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one says it's crap and says, I'll take it over. <laughs> I know I can do better than you. Um, and then after about 20 times throwing stuff back and forth and getting into a room and having shouting matches, we, we eventually settle on something. Uh, and then in this one, because um, this is obviously it's the first film that we made under the Evolutionary Films banner. Okay. Um, so this was private equity funded through Evolutionary Films, which is the, the production sales agency and now UK distributor that, that we run with, with Ross and Diane and Alistair. Yeah. Um, so, so this, we wanted to make sure that we got it right. Um, so the next thing we did actually was we got a lot of our investors and a lot of our friends and a lot of actors and actresses in, and we did a, a full on script reading at Three Mills Studios and, and kind of streamlined the script from there. So we did it quite early in the development process. We did a, we did a full on read through with, you know, with, with 30 people in a room and recorded that and then took that away and started streamlining again and cutting dialogue and, and trying to work out how, how to make this story fit. Because obviously the elements of that historical true story of, of World War Two and then a slasher movie don't really feel like they should slot together, and that's what we've tried to do. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of um, it's kind of get, it's echoes of, of um, you've kind of blended without without making it explicit to sort of elements of the occult, which we see a lot to do with like Nazi films that that you know are contemporary, but referring back to Second World War. But without that being the issue, actually, the issue was a real point of history of this auxiliary force and then some supernatural element getting involved there. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think we're I mean, when again, looking at how we market this, because it comes down to you know, to, to getting people to engage with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've spoken to distributors, particularly in other territories who have wanted to kind of take the artwork and put swastikas all over it and turn it into a Nazi movie. And yeah. we've kind of, whoa, let's, let's back away from that. Cause actually for us, that's the twist. What we're trying to do here is, is present this as a, you know, a, a psychological thriller slasher movie that, that then develops into something. And, and hopefully I know we're, we obviously we're talking about it now, but hopefully most people won't get the, the twist that's coming that dates back to world war two and until they actually watch the movie. Mm. So, so it, when you were going through those, those, those read throughs and, and batting it back with some falls with your dad. What what were what were the main sort of story challenges for you to uh, to get to overcome to get get you both happy with it? Um, I think there were two things. One is that we always end up, even when we're writing quite serious and and, and violent stuff like this, I, we always end up putting too much comedy in, okay. um, and we had to bring that back. And that just comes down to, to the personalities that me and my dad were. Magnificent Eleven was a, a better fit for our writing style because actually, yeah, we might as well. We're, we're probably. 50 years too late and should have been writing carry on movies. So we had to stop, stop that humor creeping through too much because this is quite a serious film. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Want to be disrespectful to, to the real people. There's a few of them still alive who actually did, you know, did volunteer for this role. Um, but the other thing and the much bigger thing I think was trying to 
get across enough information to make that that backstory of, of Jack's experiences in World War Two real mm-hmm. without it becoming loads of explication and dialogue and yeah and a, and a history lesson if you like. Um, sure. And I, the the thing that helped us most with that. Um, was John Reese Davies coming on board because the man is such an incredible actor that he could be talking about anything and you're mesmerised by him. I was going to say that's a bit of a coup, isn't it? Getting him, in, getting him, you know, getting John Reese involved. Yeah, no, absolutely, and he's fabulous. I mean, he was not only is he brilliant on screen, he was an absolute pleasure to work with. And when you think that this this movie was shot in January in the middle of a forest, and we were we were going in and out on gators down muddy, frozen tracks, and you know, standing around in heated tents in between takes. Um, he, you know, if we'd had a, if we'd had a Hollywood diva in there, it would have been a nightmare. And actually John was the, the one person keeping everybody amused and, and happy and, and, you know, keeping morale up. He was telling stories. He's a great raconteur. He was telling stories about, you know, all the great movies he's worked on and, and working with industry legends. So yeah, having, having John was, uh, was a coup on many, many levels. And, um, now got, look at, looking at your background, you've, 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 you've been in the forces yourself. That's that, right. Yeah, and you've you've been a military advisor on 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 big productions yourself before, as before um, in your sort of career path to where you are now, directing your own films. Um, so what what were you drawing on from from your own experience for 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 bringing into the movies for yourself, and how does that differ from when you're just advising people? Um, I think the the military advice stuff I've done in the past, it's it's generally trying to find a balance because, you know, I, I normally get brought in when productions want something to be realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ends up normally with a bit of friction because there's me standing next to the director and the director is director is wanting to make a film that looks good and, and is entertaining and, you know, and, and, and has cinematic elements. And, and, you know, there's there's and there's always an argument with how that sits with real world tactics and, and real world, you know, the, the classic ones are things like, um, you know, people smoking cigarettes while on sentry duty at night. I mean, you might as well have a, a, a red dot on your face, might as well be talking. <laughs> nobody, nobody does that. But whenever you see your sentries on duty in a film, you, the, the director always wants them smoking because it looks great on camera. Um, my favorite one was I did a commercial for Christ in the Jeep, mm-hmm. which was recreating the D-Day landings on Utah Beach. We had 10,000 French extras. It was, I mean, it was a massive, massive. Blimey, film. O'Reilly. <laughs> Um, and the director wanted to put a guy standing on top of a Sanger looking out to sea. And I went, but his life expectancy is about two seconds, because the moment he puts his head over the parapet, the German machine guns would have taken him out. And the director <laughs> said, yeah, but it looks so great. And I, it went, okay, so you need to work out what we're doing here. You need to work out whether this is realism or whether this is you know, Hollywood. And it was always finding that balance in, in those jobs. Um, this, in many ways... Because of because of what I mean, it's it's not really a military film. Mm-hmm. There is a sequence at the end where um, some a, a group of soldiers, a, a squad of soldiers, do go into the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there was a a certain amount of of you know me helping out with getting their spacing right and the way they help, the, the way they're handling the weapons. And um, and there's actually a scene in the film which was completely on the fly, which is um, Jack Durgey's character, Captain Grant, briefs his men in the forest. Mm. Um, Actually, I sat with, with Jack that morning and went, look, I think we need to break this up a bit. Let's have an orders scene. And I just gave him the format of a correct military orders group. So ground situ- situation, um, mission execution. And, and we went through the way that orders are given on the fly. And, and, and Jack basically ad-libbed that based on what I'd given him. It's one of my favorite scenes that ended up in the movie. 
Um, but what was also helpful was my first AD on this, Charlie Oakton, is also an ex-military man. Um, and you do tend to find that we, we work together a, a lot of the time. There's always yeah. more of us on set. Um, so actually, I didn't really have to engage my brain too much on the military elements of this because Charlie was already there dealing with, you know, dealing with people who couldn't hold a weapon properly or, or whatever it was. Um, but no, certainly, I think, I think pulling on my own experiences in just in the, the subject matter and the backstory and, and, and just my interest in military history and obviously my, my dad's interest in military history made this more engaging for me as a, as a directorial debut. Mm. So, um, from from the uh, from, from from the special effects side of things, I mean, there's some there's some fairly uh, there's some fairly gruesome moments there. Yes. How how much of that is 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 mm. on the page, and how much of that is what then happens when you start working with your guys who need to create that for you? Um, I think what we were going for was to try and create some unexpected deaths. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, there are some quite gory bits in this, as you know, and it's, um, but hopefully they're not, you know, over the top to the point that they, they, they're out of context to the rest of the film. Um, no, no, I, never, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, just for, for the audience's benefit, as someone who's seen it, it's never, you're, you're not, you're, there's nothing gratuitous. It's, it's, it's always about, the deaths are about in the moment, aren't they? They're not. And there's, I mean, there is one which is a, a tiny bit gratuitous, but actually it becomes a plot point later that John mm. Davies refers back to the, the the mode in which somebody's been killed as a as a way of identifying of the alternative. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, hopefully it's quite shocking. I think most of all of the deaths were on the page in terms of the people who died in the film. Obviously, died in the script in in yeah, some. Yeah, of course. What we did was, I mean, we had some quite outlandish stuff in the screenplay and then working on the, on the technical recce, working with um, my, my special effects guy, Matt Strange, and, and stunt coordinator, Pete Pedrero, we ended up changing some of those deaths to fit things that either better suited the location or better suited things that we had access to. For example, without giving too much away, Peter had a, a, a decapitation rig, um, and you know where that's going. And, and actually, that, that whole sequence grew around him saying, well, instead of having somebody impaled on a spike, why don't we do this? Um, and, that, that, and the whole thing then blocked around what, what happens to that first police officer who yeah, with the bayonet. So I'm, I'm trying not to give too much away. No, 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 that, was a, that was a pretty neat sequence. Um, yeah, and, and hopefully... <laughs> Thank you. And hopefully that that then, you know, so but that grew out of the conversations we were having on the ground. So you're, you're quite right. It's what was on the page and, and what ended up on the screen are they're, they're similar, but but they've been adapted to, to make best use of the assets we had because you know, working on the, the kind of budget level we were. Um, obviously, we couldn't necessarily do everything we really wanted to. No, no. And it's good. I think for, for all filmmakers listening, it's 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 it, nothing's finite, is it? Nothing's final. It's so the collaboration sort of never stops, does it, when you're making the movie? I think that's right. And anybody who goes into something like this, especially you know, in the middle of the forest in January, where we've only got a certain number of hours of daylight each day to set up these quite complicated stunt and special effects rigs. Mm. Um, if you if you go in intransigent and you're not willing to listen to the people who've been doing it for, for years around you, um, you're, you're going to come unstuck. So, you, yeah, you, you just it's a collaborative process and, and you have to take on board what people are saying. Now, I feel like I'm in a unique position talking to you being ex-military and now working in film. Because a lot of the conversations I've had with people who've come on before is, is people have referred to a film set and the hierarchy of a film set being quite militaristic in the way that people defer to different roles. How close do you think that is as a comparison? Does it, do, does it, does it, bear, does it bear up to the reality of being in the military? 
Um, military is slightly more disciplinarian. Um, we, I think there's, I think there's a lot of similarities. I mean, just in, just that you do find a lot of ADs and, and line producers come from an ex-military background. They're really quite successful people. Okay. Um, because there is a, a, a significant crossover in terms of the logistics of how a film set is serviced. I mean, if you just think about, you know, a, a military unit needs certain things and they are movement orders, food, weapons and, and ammunition and, and, and equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, you take if you take the, the weapons and, and imagine we're shooting with cameras rather than rifles. Um, actually, the, the the basic job of getting all of the right people in the right place at the right time is is a lot like a military exercise. Um, so I think from an organisation and planning and logistical point of view, there's a there's a lot of similarities. Um, I tend to find I've been shot at less since I moved into the film industry. <laughs> This is probably but, true. Actually, that's that's not entirely true because I did get shot at in Africa on a film set a couple of years ago. Um, but um, <laughs> but um, it's um, yeah, it's, there are there are a lot of similarities there, and I think people from from military backgrounds do tend to to, to progress quite well in the film industry. Um, having said that, film industry much more collaborative, much more open to you know people like like we were just discussing, people throwing mm. their ideas in and, and, and it becoming a you know you, you wouldn't be able at the start of a at the start of a, a contact to, to turn to your commanding officer and say, I've got a few ideas about how we might approach this boss. Um, you yeah, they they're gonna give you orders rather than listening to what you're saying. Yeah, so it's just so in a sense it's just the ba- the basic idea that maybe the book stops with the director but the director isn't gonna be um feel affronted if someone wants to contribute to what the end product is. I, I actually think a good director will listen to what everybody has to say and, and then make a decision on the best way forward, whereas a military commander quite often has to make decisions immediately based on based on the, the situation facing him. So in terms of, from your, from your view then, as a, as a director trying to get the best out of your actors, and, I mean, when you did the table read with the script, was that with the actors in place or was that just a table read for you to hear it or was that with the, the people you were going to cast? No, it was table read with actors that we already knew who were friends and some of our investors in the company and some of, yeah, it was, okay. it was, a, so, it was so, more formal gathering. Yeah, um, no. Having said that, some of the people at that table read did end up being cast in the film. Okay, but what I was thinking was, in terms of you as a director then, how, how do you approach your actors? Is, 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 it, is it when they come on set or, and you begin the conversation of what you want? Is there some time before you get on set that you want to speak to them, certainly for some of your, your lead actors that you've got in the roles? Um, I, I think um, in an ideal world, I think you'd always want time to prep with them and, and work through with them and, and yeah, go through the dialogue and, and go through the, the, the backstory and the arcs of their characters. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it does depend on availabilities and it does depend on, on budget, frankly. Um, on Orcs, I did have, I didn't have John Reese Davies in country until the day before we had him on set. Wow. I had dinner with him the night before. Um, and we chatted over, over, I think we had, a, I think we had an Indian takeaway or something. And we, we, we just sat and, and, and talked, talked about the backstory and his character. But I had previous to that, um, had about two or three very, very long telephone conversations with him about his character and, and Jack's backstory and, and the way that we were going to portray him. So I'd probably done six, eight hours on the telephone with, with John before we arrived in country. And then we had, we had a bit of rehearsal time. Um, with the other, with the other main actors, um, Tristan Summers and Rosie Fellner and, and, and those guys, Paul Reynolds, um, I did get a bit more time because we we had sort of days where they came with costume fittings where I took them. We we were based out of the, the believe it or not, based out of a nuclear bunker um, was our unit base. We were based out of the secret nuclear bunker. Screen in method. 
Um, yeah, no, absolutely. So, so our costume fittings and our costume department were all in an underground bunker. Um, it was slightly not, not quite like the one in the film, because obviously the one in the film is a set. Um, but um, it meant that I had this enormous sprawling underground area where I could take actors off and go you know, two floors down into the, into the depths of the earth to go and rehearse with them. So we did do a bit of rehearsing um, and, you know, Sally Mortimer and Tony Pritchard, who played the farmer and his wife, came in and we, we ran their scenes together. Um, so I got I, I did get I got quite a lot of time and I think that was very beneficial. Um, but then once you get onto location, of course, it all it all changes a little bit because you, you have to fit what you've been working on to that environment and, and make it work in the setting. And I think that's when you know, for me, it's about letting the actors do what they want to do and then and then tweaking it and, and talking to them about how you know how it might improve but I think I, I've worked with because obviously I first AD quite a bit in the past as well yeah I've worked with both types of directors I've worked with directors who let the actors do their thing and then shape it and I've worked with directors who want to tell the actors what to do and just treat them like sort of marionettes to do it and I, I've always felt that if you're working with talented people Let's see what they want to do before you start dictating to them, because otherwise you're just wasting that potential. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose you're never you're never going to see what they bring if you tell them what to do. No, exactly. And, and so it was, yeah, it was much more about me standing back and watching them perform, and then saying, okay, that's brilliant. Can we turn it this way, or, or you know, maybe this line is the intonation could be different, or, or however we shape it. But yeah, you know, and I think I was I was really fortunate in that. This was a tight schedule. It was, you know, it was a pretty hectic shoot to get this done in the in the twenty odd days that we had to shoot it. Um, and I had a fantastic, really talented, brilliant cast, and it was very unusual that I didn't love what they were doing. And you mentioned there earlier on that you that you shot this in January. So can you can you talk us through some of the challenges of trying to shoot a film in Britain in uh, in January? Uh, well, it's bloody cold and it <laughs> rains a lot. Um, and um, well, you, w- you wouldn't know from the film then if it rains a lot. <laughs> um, there are a few little continuity errors in there, which I think we get away with where the weather changes. I mean, there's there's there were mornings when we turned up and we were meant to be filming outside, and there was sort of an inch of frost over the top of all the trees, and we kind of had to rethink our schedule a bit. Um, but for the for the most part, we were immensely lucky. This film is sixty seventy percent exterior, um, and shooting it in January was a, a huge gamble. We did it for a number of reasons. And the, the main one is that um, I have done a January shoot before, and you tend to find that shooting early enough in January means you're not competing with other bigger productions for cast and equipment and all the other stuff that, that you want, because most people start prep after the Christmas holidays and shoot in February. So if you can get the shoot in from mid-January, you've got a couple of weeks where bigger actors might be available or you, know, you can get better deals on equipment because it's sitting on shelves. So it was a, it was a calculated, uh, it was a calculated gamble and I think it paid off for us. Um, there were one or two days where, you know, in particular the scene where Paul Reynolds character Reed gets, uh, gets uh, his, his comeuppance at the end of the film. Um, we set that it's a very, very complicated um, SFX gag with a, a big swinging mechanism um, and we, we'd set that up in the trees the night before. It took the guys most of a day to rig it. Um, and then we turned up to shoot it and we got one take in and we were just resetting it and the heavens absolutely opened and everybody got totally drenched. Um, and it was, I had the, the, the script supervisor standing next to me saying, well, we, we can't carry on shooting because it's, it's, you know, clearly he's now soaking wet. Um, and we did another couple of takes and, and actually the one in the film, um, is it cuts between dry and wet. And I think because of really? 
one. Yeah, if you watch it again, it does. But I think because what's going on, you don't really notice it. Because if you're if you're noticing that suddenly his cap's got a little bit of rain on it when the other stuff happening in that scene is happening, then yeah, I think I think we've missed the point. It's a bit Rambo first blood on steroids that moment, isn't it? It is quite cool, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That was one that was in the script, um, and we were we were quite keen to keep it. Uh, and we had a, a lot of collaboration between um, Paul Burns, the production designer, and Pete Pedrero and Matt Strange, and all the people we mentioned earlier. And they they kind of came up with sketches and designs for how we might be able to do that and, and make it work. Uh, and then actually, myself and Ross doing the assembly edit sat for quite a long time trying to find the best way of cutting that moment to make it seamless, so it looks like the the thing does actually penetrate. No, no. Well, I was convinced. If I'm anything to go by. Yeah, well, Paul is now dead, obviously, after shooting that scene. He <laughs> <laughs> certainly didn't look well. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, do you want to? T- when can when can people see Orgs? What's the release schedule for uh, this? So it's coming out in limited cinemas nationwide on the tenth of November. Uh, we're releasing ourselves through Evolutionary Films, so mm-hmm. um, it's in showcase cinemas, and there's a list of the cities that it's coming out in on our social media feeds. I think. Okay, well, I'll, um, I'll put links in the, in the show notes for the podcast. Cool, thank you. Um, so, yeah, so Cinema's on the 10th of November. It's then on Sky Store as a premium VOD title for, I think it's about four weeks on Sky as exclusive to them. Um, yeah. So people will be able to get it on Sky. And then I think it's on general release on all the other platforms. So, yeah, pretty much everywhere, Google Play, Microsoft, Virgin, all of those other platforms, will iTunes and Amazon. Uh, from first week in January, I think it is. It's about the 6th of January, uh, and it will be on DVD at the same time. Excellent, excellent. Well, look, best of luck with the release. Thank you very much indeed. Congratulations on it. What do you say? You, this is your directorial debut then? It is, yeah. I've been uh, I've been in this industry for nearly 20 years, and I've never directed before. I've written and produced and AD'd and line produced and various other things, but this one was... I think because it was one that Dad and, Dad and I had written and because of all the military content and the fact that it was the, the first one under the new company banner, I, I took the plunge and said, you know what, if, if anybody's going to screw it up, it might as well be me. So can I ask you, given, given all the experience you've had in various roles on a film set, being put in the position of director, what new lesson learned did you, did you get from the experience of directing your first film or lessons? I actually, I, I, I loved it. I actually found it quite frustrating. Um, because I'm used to, as as a producer, I'm used to having a much broader view of everything that's going on. And as a director, everyone keeps kind of telling you to just focus on the monitor and, and direct. And you kind of go, yeah, but what are we doing next? Uh, that doesn't matter. That's yeah. Let, let the other people handle that. You just get on with directing, and, and we'll set up what's happening next. And I found it, I found it quite frustrating in many ways because of what I was used to. And then as I got used to it, 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 it was it was a, a really it's, it was enlightening to understand how other directors think when I'm working with them. Um, and also I found myself sort of becoming so immersed in it. And, 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 and in many ways, I understood you know, that some of the, the emotional reactions that I've had from other directors in the past when you interrupt their chain of thought, because it is, it's using a part of my brain that I, I very rarely use. Um, and it was, it was a good challenge, and I, I, I'll do it again someday. Yeah, I'm, uh, I read The Devil's Candy, which is Brian De Palma's book about making bonfire vanities, and, and he refers to directing as going into a tunnel and the only way out is the other end of the tunnel. You can never come back. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good analogy. Um, <laughs> and it is. It, it is. It's, it's just it's total focus on, on what's in front of you at the time. 
um, and, and reliance and, and trust that the people around you will, will deliver on everything they're meant to be doing. Um, and again, I was, you know, I was really lucky on this. I've been on, I've been on shows in the past where things haven't gone to plan and, you know, the director ends up standing in a location with the wrong people on set or, you know, something not prepped. Um, this ran considering it was freezing cold, middle of January and, and, and where we were, it ran incredibly smoothly. And it's a, it's a testament to, to Diane Shorthouse and, and the team around us that, that we managed to do that. Well, look, thank you very much for uh, giving us your time on the BritFlix podcast. Thanks for having me. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.